Well, there's an excellent book that uh, we give out once in a while to uh, new members here at Bethlehem Bible Church. It's called by the title, Life in the Father's House. And I always love subtitles because the subtitles of books really give away what they're all about. The subtitle to the book, Life in the Father's House, is this, A Member's Guide to the Local Church. Very comprehensive book. Forward is written by Pastor John MacArthur. It's co-authored by two other guys. And uh, I know some of the men here in our church are doing it for discipleship. But in one of the chapters, the co-authors write the following, and they use an analogy to compare church life with a baseball game. And they write the following, quote, At a baseball game, the coaches and players do all the work in a combined effort to win the game while the crowd looks on. Some onlookers are vocal supporters who say, let's go. You can do it. boy." Others are critics who say, can't you do anything right? I could play better than that. Still others are indifferent, like the wife who has been dragged to the ballpark by her husband and looking up from her needlepoint says, what quarter is it? These spectators contribute very little to the outcome of the game, though they may have strong opinions about how it should be played. Unfortunately, many churches are filled with people who approach church life as if they were at a ball game. They are content to let the leaders and some members do all the work while they themselves sit back and cheer, criticize, or simply pass the time. But God's word makes it clear that life in the Father's house is not a spectator sport. Close quote. My question to you tonight by way of encouragement and by way of exhortation is, does that describe you? Do you see from your perspective, from your lens, as it were, church life like going to a ball game? Is that what you were thinking this morning as you were coming to church? Let me give you a simplified version of the membership class that I teach here. I call it the ABCs of church membership. Why is church membership important? The first A stands for accountability. Yes, we are ultimately accountable to the Lord. We will all have to give an answer. But we have each other to be accountable to. That's part of why we have church discipline. That's why we have elders over us. That's why we have other brothers and sisters who disciple us and encourage us and speak words of encouragement and exhortation to keep us accountable. The second B is belonging. It's important that every genuine Christian belongs to a church family. True, we all belong to the universal church, but we need to belong to a local family of believers, those people who will support us through thick and thin. As I tell my children all the time, we we have a family, our family, mom and dad and the, the three children, but we also have a spiritual family, a church family, and that's Bethlehem Bible Church. And that gives us a sense of belonging to the family of believers. Accountability, belonging, and the C stands for what I want to focus on tonight, contribution. Contribution. That everyone who has been saved by God, who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, has a contribution to make to the body of Christ. Every single one of us has a contribution to make to the body of Christ. If you would turn with me to our text this evening as we study these two verses, it's in the epistle of 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be looking at two verses, verses 10 and 11. 
verses 10 and 11. First Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And as I walk us through this passage, I'm going to ask and answer five basic questions that will help us unfold an understanding of this passage. Now, you see the title is Spiritual Gifts. I can come here tonight and tell you, you know what? I have revolutionized how we're going to do church life. I have come up on my own with this new inventory that you're going to take tonight so you can discover what your spiritual gift is and it'll revolutionize your life. But I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to walk us instead through the scriptures and see what these two verses, what the Holy Spirit says through the pen of the Apostle Peter concerning spiritual gifts. Beginning in verse 10, chapter 4. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Five questions that we need to ask that are drawn from this passage that will help us give a more clear understanding of spiritual gifts. Question number one, who receives spiritual gifts? Who receives spiritual gifts? Look at the beginning of verse 10 with me. As each, stop there, as each. In the Greek, it's emphatic. The term is ekastos, and it literally means as each and every one. In other words, none excluded. As each and every one of you. This is not referring to the spiritually elite. This is not referring just to pastors and leaders. This is referring to every genuine believer. It's both for the new baby Christian and for the mature Christian. It's both for male and female. It's both for young and old. No Christian is left out. As each of you, as each and every one of you, emphatic, none excluded. Paul says the same thing in writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. He says, to each, again emphatic, is given the manifestation of the Spirit. To each and every one as each has received a gift. Let me use some Abendrothian homiletics here. I like that. It sounds much better than Delagenides. True or false? Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers for the work of the ministry. True or false? Wes, are you nodding true? I did this one with my college group and they got it all of them wrong. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. The question for the true or false is, God gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for the work of the ministry. True or false? Most of the college kids said true, but it is not true. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. And we'll see, as Paul also highlights with Peter's instructions here in 1 Peter 4, that each and every genuine believer has received a spiritual gift. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he, referring to Christ, gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers for the work of the ministry? No. To equip whom? The saints for the work of the ministry. That's a very strong word. The word equip there is I remember nowadays it doesn't happen when you go and you want to fix an apartment that's not very nice. The walls, you paint it. I remember the days when as a high school kid, I used to help my dad put wallpaper up. That was quite a challenge. We'd sit there and paste it, have to scrape the old wallpaper off, and then we'd have to make sure we put it up on the wall in such a way where the pieces were seamless. That is the idea here, that God has given these shepherds and teachers, these pastor teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. He didn't give them for them to do the work of the ministry, but to equip the saints. And it is consistent with the context of Ephesians 4. Notice in verse 7, but grace was given to the pastor and teachers. No, to whom? To each one. To each and every one, none excluded. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when the pastor teachers work properly. No, when each part, everyone is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Peter's message in 1 Peter 4 is consistent with what Paul instructs the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 4, that God, Christ, the head of the church, gave these apostles and prophets in the foundation of the church, and now the evangelists and pastor teachers to equip the saints, each one, each and every one, to contribute to the work of the ministry. Back to our text, 1 Peter. By the time Peter is writing chapter 4, where he tells us in our text, as each who has received the spiritual gift, each and every one, is consistent with what he said earlier. If you look at chapter 2, verse 9. How does he address these believers? But you are a chosen race, a what? A royal priesthood. One of the doctrines of the Reformation that we as biblical evangelicals believe is the doctrine of the priesthood of every believer. Yes, God has called in a special way through Christ the head those who are to be pastor teachers and leaders above us. But we believe in that scripture teaches the priesthood of every believer, that whether you are paid to be in ministry, every born-again believer is in full-time ministry. Every one of us, each and every one, none excluded. I remember at the uh, former church, small church I used to pastor, I wanted to kind of get this point across, so I did something crazy, which is I know very uncharacteristic of me. But I showed up at church one Sunday with a priest collar around my neck. And people thought we might be going Catholic, which was not the case. It was just to illustrate, as I taught through this, the priesthood of every believer, that each one has a contribution to the body of Christ. Who is this each of chapter 4, verse 10, that Peter is talking about? Go back to chapter 1 of the book. And let's see what he says about each of these who has received the gift. In chapter 1, verse 1, he refers to them as elect exiles. The each of chapter 4, verse 10, were the elect. The each term, chapter 4, verse 10, are what Peter says also in 
chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. As we heard this morning, it's not our faith that has caused us to be born again, but God himself has caused us to be born again. This is who he's talking about in chapter 4, verse 10, the each, those who have by God been born again. He's referring to those who have an inheritance, verse 4. What kind of an inheritance? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The each of chapter 4 is referring to those who are guarded by God's power, verse 5, chapter 1, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. These are the ones who, according to verse 8 of chapter 1, love Jesus Christ, where he says here, though you have not seen him, you love him. It is those who have an inexpressible joy. Verse 8 continues, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Going further down in chapter 1. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. These are the ones who were ransomed. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. These are ones who have been born again by God's great mercy through the living and abiding word of God. Chapter 2, verse 9, which I referred to earlier. These are the ones in chapter 4 that Peter's referring to who are a what? A chosen race, who are a royal priesthood, who are a holy nation, who are a people for his own possession, who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, who are all those people? Just the pastor teachers? No, every genuine believer. They believe because they've been born of God. That is the ones Peter is referring to in chapter 4, verse 10, when he says, each and every one of you, none excluded. So who receives spiritual gifts? The first question, every believer, every one of us. Question number two, when are spiritual gifts given? When are spiritual gifts given? Verse 10 continues of our text. As each has received... The term received in the Greek is in the indicative mood. It's the aorist tense, which simply means this, that it's a definitive historical event that happened in the past, a specific time in the past, time when God had caused these to be born again so that they could believe. It's a definitive time in the past. It has nothing to do with when each of these believers decided, I decide now I want to have a spiritual gift. It's something that happened to them. It's passive by God. In the same way that he caused them to be born again, something that happened to them in the past. And as we will see who is the one who does this, we see that more than likely it happened at conversion because it is passive. We receive it. As each and every one has received at a specific time in the past. Question number three. What is a spiritual gift? What is a spiritual gift? Simply in the Greek here, he says, as each has received a gift. The term is charisma, where we get the English term charismatics. It's really the root word for the term grace, charis, charisma. Now, it's important to understand what a spiritual gift is not, 
before we understand what it is. A spiritual gift is not the same as a natural talent. Though natural talents are given also by God and can be developed and nurtured, and natural talents are specifically to believers and unbelievers. Anybody can have a natural talent. Whereas spiritual gifts are only given to those who have been born again, to those who are called of God. Let me give you some working definitions that might help unlock this idea of spiritual gifts biblically. This one's taken from Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary. Spiritual gifts are special gifts bestowed by the Holy Spirit upon Christians for the purpose of building up the church. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia writes this. Spiritual gifts are varied endowments graciously bestowed by the triune God upon individual Christians, but particularly intended to enhance the community, worship, and service of locally gathered Christians and thereby to enrich the whole church. Note that it said locally gathered Christians of a local body of believers. Well, many people say, well, you know, I I belong to the church, and that's an important doctrine soteriologically and ecclesiologically, when God causes us to be born again, he places us into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about that. But in order to serve, to make use of our spiritual gifts, it has to be done in a local context. A third and final working definition from MacArthur's commentary. Quote, spiritual gifts are special capacities bestowed on believers to equip them to minister supernaturally to each other. The key is equip. You see, the marvelous thing about God, God just doesn't save us from hell. When he causes us to be born again, the work of regeneration, whom God justifies, he also sanctifies, and he'll ultimately glorify. But he doesn't leave us like that. He equips us so that we can serve in the local body with these spiritual gifts. Question number four. Why are spiritual gifts given? The all-important question, why? In other words, what is the purpose of spiritual gifts? They are given to each and every believer, none excluded. They are something that's done passively given by God, as we will see. They are a supernatural ability to serve the body. But why are they given? Peter makes that very clear. There's two reasons why spiritual gifts are given. Number one, notice in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to what? To serve yourself, to serve one another, to serve one another. The first purpose of spiritual gifts that Peter outlines here is for serving one another in the body. Paul makes the same Idea clear in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. He says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good of the local body. The Greek term, diakonundis, it's an interesting term. It's kind of a menial term. It literally means to wait on tables. That's the kind of service that Peter is talking about here. And I'm sure when Peter is penning this text under the inspiration of the Spirit, he might be thinking back to the words of his Lord and recalling when Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to be mocked and I'm going to be crucified, but I will rise on the third day. 
And immediately after that, two of the disciples begin to argue and ask Jesus a question. Could I be on your right hand and on your left hand? After he just told them about his crucifixion and resurrection. The other disciples became indignant, probably because they didn't get to it first. And Jesus used that as a teaching tool and told them, The Gentiles lord it over you, but he who shall be first among you shall be last, and the greatest is the slave of all. And he highlighted it with this, Jesus' words. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Same word. He came as a suffering servant. Peter not only knew this from his own Lord, he knew this from his experience in the early church in Jerusalem. Listen to this serving mentality that the early church had in Acts chapter 2. Excuse me. I thought I turned it off. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. All things were in common. Koinonia, fellowship. And of course, one of the issues that rose up in the early church, I'm sure Peter was remembering, in Acts chapter 6, Luke writes, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Same word that Peter used here. Therefore, Luke continues, Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to pray and to the ministry, literally the service of the word. That's the ministry of the word. It's, it's a service. We don't have to prepare the meal. The meal has already been prepared by the Lord. We simply come and serve it. This is why gifts were given, Peter says, to serve one another. He knew this not only from the Lord himself, but he knew it as he experienced in the early church in Jerusalem. But he continues how we are to serve one another in this first purpose of spiritual gifts. Verse 10, use it to serve one another as what? As good stewards. Stewards. Now let me ask you, typically when, when I might think initially of the word stewardship, I usually, we have a tendency to think of what? Money and finances and giving. And I remember hearing as a young Christian a, a great series from 2 Corinthians 8-9 through 9 on financial stewardship. But biblically, stewardship encompasses more than just that. It encompasses all of our Christian life. You're not only a steward of your finances. If you're a husband, you're a steward of your wife. If you're a father or a mother, you are stewards of your children. You are a steward, you and I, those of us who have been born again by the Spirit of God, of the gospel that we have been entrusted to by God to preach it to others. So when we only think of stewardship in terms of finances, it's a narrow scope. The biblical scope is a lot larger. And of course, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found what? Faithful. Faithful. Let me give you my own working definition of a steward. A steward is this. It involves three parts based on Scripture. A faithful manager 
A steward is a faithful manager of the owner's possessions. Of the owner's possessions that the owner has entrusted to your care. A faithful manager of the owner's possessions that the owner has entrusted to your care. Everything we have is God's. Naked we came from our mother's womb and naked we shall return. And we are to be faithful stewards. God has entrusted those things that are his to our care. And one of those things is our spiritual gift because it is from him we are stewards of this gift for the purpose of serving one another. But Peter doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 10. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of what? Of God's very grace. Emphasis on God's. This leads us to our fifth question. Who gives spiritual gifts? God is the one who gives spiritual gifts. Specifically, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. As he wills. As the spirit of God wills. The same spirit of God by which we are caused to be born again Chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Peter is the same Spirit of God who endows us with these spiritual gifts. Well, let me speak on a practical level a little bit here. A couple of warnings, a couple of extremes to avoid. One extreme is this. You might have the attitude of this. I have the better gift. My gift is better. My gift is more useful for the church. If you do have that attitude, you need to remind yourself your gift was not determined by what you wanted or what you sought after. It was determined by God who willed it. Just as your salvation and my salvation was bestowed by God sovereignly and graciously, your spiritual gift was bestowed by God sovereignly and graciously. It is as he wills. The other extreme attitude might be, my gift is not that important. I'm not really important in the body. I'm not needed. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 21, to answer that attitude. The illustration of the body that Paul uses here. Verse 21, 1 Corinthians 12. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. That's the first attitude of the one who says, I have the better gift. Verse 21 continues. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are what? Indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which are more presentable parts do not require. But watch this. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. That purpose clause, there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Verse 26, it closes. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice 
together. Everyone in the body, because God has caused you to be born again and placed you into the church, the bride, is important. It's by God's design, by God's will. And Peter highlights continued in verse 10 here, not only is it of God, but it's of God's very grace. There's a diversity of gifts. Paul highlights this in Romans 12 when he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And then Peter continues to describe these gifts a little bit more in verse 11. And he gives two categories, two general categories of gifts. But before I get into those a little bit, as we close with verse 11, there are really three categories of gifts. Peter highlights here the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. But there are also sign gifts. Notice how they're not included here. By this time in church history and in the canon, there was no need for the sign gifts. Hebrews chapter 2, which I know Pastor Mike will be getting to in his exposition, says clearly, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go over the sign gifts. I just want to get into a little bit about speaking gifts and serving gifts as outlined here in 1 Peter 4. But let me give you a couple of resources for the sign gifts. Two of them. Uh, from Pastor Mike, actually. This is from his message. You can look it up on, the, on our uh, website, a church website. It's from June, chap- June 3, 2012. He was doing a series on 1 Corinthians 12. He was expositing through that whole uh, letter. And it's called Spiritual Gifts 101. And it's part three of that message. But the key to understanding that is at the very end, he gives seven questions what you would ask people who still believe the sign gifts are operable today. Seven questions. And another great resource you can look up online is by Pastor Tom Pennington. It's called The Case for Cessationism. And he taught that at the Strange Fire Conference in 2013. Two great resources on the sign gifts, but we're not going to get into that tonight. But notice here, the first general category that Peter refers to is speaking gifts. Whoever speaks, how? Watch this. As one who speaks the oracles of God. Not my own philosophy, not secular humanism. The one who speaks ought to speak is one who speaks the oracles of God. The Greek term is a diminutive of the term logos, where we get the word in our English Bible, the word referring to the word of God. Peter knew about this in Acts 7. He was there at the martyrdom of Stephen when Stephen said in Acts 7, this is the one when he was talking about Moses who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. The Apostle Paul knew about the oracles of God. When he wrote in Romans chapter 3, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That is why we do expository preaching, because we speak as one who speaks the very oracles of God. It means the very words of God. These are divine utterances. 
After all, he did say earlier, we are stewards. It's not our word, it's God's word. We are stewards of the words of God. That's why we can say, thus saith the Lord. This is his word. We are his stewards. Spurgeon, quote, Reckon that every sermon is a wasted sermon, which is not Christ's word. Believe that all theology is rotten rubbish that is not the word of the Lord. Do not be satisfied with going to a place of worship and hearing an eloquent discourse unless the sum and substance of it is the word of the Lord. Close quote. It's no wonder the Puritans understood this, that they were speaking the oracles of God. Richard Baxter would have to say, as a dying man, he preached to dying men. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones said that preaching is logic what? On fire. And I love the story that Lloyd-Jones pens in his book, Preaching and Preachers, of George Whitfield. Somebody came to George Whitfield one time and said, could I print your sermons? Have them in print so people can read them. Whitfield obliged said, sure you can, but what you'll never be able to print is the lightning and the thunder. These are the words of God, the oracles of God, divine utterances. So you come Sunday morning to church, you're not the preacher, but you're a listener. My question is, how do you hear the word of God? Do you hear it as the oracles of God? Are you a passive listener or an active listener? I know somebody once told me, I purposely sit in the front, they told me, because I don't want to be distracted by everything else that's going on in front of me so they can focus their attention on the very words of God that are being proclaimed. These are the speaking gifts. Secondly, Peter highlights in verse 11, the serving gifts. And he says this in our text, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Whoever serves, do it by the strength that God supplies. So you might erroneously think, oh, this is easy. By the strength that God supplies, I will serve. I won't be exhausted. I won't be tired. It's by the strength that God supplies. True, it is by the strength that God supplies. Our verse that we have in our bulletin every Sunday morning, Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, teaching, admonishing everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The very next verse, Paul says the following that will help shed some light on on this. Colossians 1.29, Paul says, For this I what? I toil, struggling with all His energy. It's both and. It's by the strength that God supplies us, Peter says. Or it's with God's energy. But Paul says it's toil involved. The Greek word kopiazo means toiling to the point of extreme fatigue and exhaustion. When you serve others, it can be exhausting. The term struggling that Paul uses there is a term where we get agonized. You go through great pains to not think of yourself, but to think of others to serve them. But we do it according to the strength that God supplies. And finally, what's the second purpose for why God gives spiritual gifts? First, to serve one another, but ultimately and primarily, as indicated by the Hina Clause in verse 11, notice, in order that, in order that, what? In everything, in everything, God may be glorified through whom? Through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus told the disciples in the upper room discourse, 
John 15, 8. By this is my Father glorified that you do what? Bear much fruit. So if I were to ask you, how is God glorified? We say we want to glorify God. Jesus had said there in John 15, it's by bearing fruit. Well, another way we glorify God, as according to Peter here in our text, is by serving in order that God may be glorified. And that brings glory to God because why? Because whether it's a speaking gift, we don't speak our own words, we speak the oracles of God. Because if we serve, we serve by the strength that God supplies. We do it, as Peter tells these believers, in light of what God has done already, chapter 1 and 2, which I highlighted earlier. Because God has caused us to be born again. Because he's given us an inheritance. Because we are a chosen race. He will receive the glory when we serve his church. It's his church. Sometimes one of my professors used to tell me Howie Hendricks. He said he would go to different churches to preach. And the pastor would use the term, my church. And somebody said that to me recently. And I said to them, it's not your church. It's nobody here, of course. Somebody at another church I was visiting, I said, it's Christ's church. We are simply stewards under shepherds. It's for the glory of God why we serve. So when you come to church, you think as you're part of the member of the church life here at BBC, Lord, I want to serve for no other reason than to bring glory to you. It might mean that you might not get that pat on the back. You may, and we try to encourage people, thank you for serving. But are you doing it to get a pat on the back? Even if you go unnoticed, we do it for the glory of God. Same with the speaking gifts. It's done for the glory of God. And that's why we do expository preaching, because expository preaching highlights the glory and supremacy of God. I was listening recently, and I love listening to this. Uh, Steve Lawson, in his uh, teaching class at the Master Seminary on his preaching class, he gave an example of the late Donald Gray Barnhouse, a former pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. And Barnhouse was invited at one point to go back to his alma mater to preach in Princeton, And he knew on the very front row were going to be some of his professors. So that's a high honor to go back and be invited to preach at your alma mater. But knowing that your professors who taught you are sitting there. And as he's preaching, 10 minutes into it didn't pass. One of his professors, he looks down, gets up and walks straight out. Barnhouse could barely get through his sermon. When he was finally done, he went to find his professor and asked him, what did I do wrong? He assumed that for him to get up and leave, something went wrong. What could I have done better? Professor looked at him and he said, I only sit in my former student's sermons one time, and I only look for one thing. And he said this, I look and see if you're a big God preacher. And he says, within 10 minutes, I knew that you were a big God preacher, so I don't have to listen to it anymore. And he walked out. That's why we do it, for the glory of God. But as we close, it almost seems unusual that these two verses, if you understand the scope of 1 Peter, are kind of just thrown in here, kind of airdropped. It almost seems counter to Peter's argument, to Peter's authorial intent. I mean, the scope of 1 Peter is really a lot about suffering. These believers were under persecution. They were exiles, persecuted under Nero, as we've discussed before, as I've taught through 1 Peter. And all of a sudden, he's talking about spiritual gifts. I mean, even this section is bookended by suffering. Notice at the beginning of chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, 
arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Verse 12, the very next verse after he's done with these two verses. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. The other passages in the New Testament on spiritual gifts seem to be natural. For example, 1 Corinthians 12. The church that was so divisive that a lot of issues concerning leadership and they were abusing the spiritual gifts, Paul spends three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, to correct them on their misunderstanding of spiritual gifts. It flows with what his intent is there. The book of Ephesians chapter 4, after highlighting all that God has done in Christ, the first three chapters, he gets into chapter 4 that we read briefly tonight to describe what Christ is doing in the church. And even in the book of Romans, after 11 chapters of theology, in chapter 12, he talks about these gifts and how the church is to operate. But here, in the midst of suffering, he throws these verses about spiritual gifts. And we must have to ask the question, why? I think there are really two reasons. The first reason is this. Look at the beginning, verse 7. This is one literary unit from verse 7 to 11, though I only covered verses 10 to 11. What does he say in verse 7? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, and he gives a list of things. Be self-controlled, sober-minded, and then he gets into the gifts. I think why Peter includes it in here is, though the end of all things is at hand, it's imminent, so to speak. Don't stop. Keep serving. Keep serving. Young and old, keep serving for the glory of God. But a second reason, because they were suffering under Nero, they were exiles under persecution. Notice the one another in this literary unit. It said as in our text to serve one another. Verse 9 says, show hospitality to one another. Verse 8, going backwards, above all, keep loving one another. In the midst of persecution, what was going to bind these Christians together? The one another's. And one of these one another's was serving one another with the use of the spiritual gifts. Peter knew about this from the early persecution that the early church faced. Their fellowship was forged in the fires of persecution. And he's saying, listen, you're under persecution. Continue to serve one another with what God has gifted you. In conclusion, to those who serve, two things. Remember, as Paul says in Colossians, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. If you take your eyes off of the one whom you're serving, you'll get discouraged to serve. And also, just an attitude check by way of encouragement for those of you who serve. You could get frustrated, and if that frustration is not in check, it could lead to anger, could lead to bitterness. And you might start thinking to yourself, I'm always the one serving in this area. Why isn't anyone else doing it? To those who aren't serving, I say to you, by divine design, you do play a contribution in Christ's church. You have a significant role. Use it to serve your fellow members for the glory of God. To those who don't have a spiritual gift, the reason you don't have a spiritual gift is because you haven't been born again. And you need to look to the one, the Son of Man, who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know it 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism, what's the first question? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let's glorify God as we serve one another. Father, thank you for this brief time in your word as we open it up and allow your spirit, the author, to teach us. Pray that you would help us, Father, in light of all that you have done to us, to do everything for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.